Welcome back. Two more states were added last week, so just five more to go to get to 50. I guess that's fitting since it is episode 45, one for each state so far. As we continue this journey into the world of policymaking at both the Air Force level and the Department of Defense, it is an experience that is really quite exciting as well as daunting. Again, I'm the most junior officer on the staff and one of only a handful of captains. I'm reminded of this on a fairly constant basis by some of my peers and, yet at the same time, I think generally I held my own. We also continue the trend that I'm the only Asian American military member on the staff and only one of two total. This is still in the mid-1990s and that does change as we move forward. Early into the assignment, I'm also able to stave off some of these issues with some early wins. On arrival to the air staff, I'm quickly reacquainted with Mr. Myers, and let me tell you a little about him. He was a decorated career MWR military member before moving into the civilian workforce, and he quickly moved from base to major command. He was initially the deputy director for the newly formed Air Force MWR and Services, which is a correction from last week, where I noted he was initially the director. That would come for him later. He was a passionate and compassionate leader. His style was to hold you accountable and, at the same time, allowed you to make mistakes without, without a lot of fallout. And he was particularly focused on career development of his team, which you'll see later. I think the leadership trait that I appreciated the most from him was that he was easy to talk to. He also had the respect of everyone around him, whether it was the bases, the major commands, or the entire air staff outside of services. He quickly took me under his wing, giving me the responsibility as chief of resources and requirements. In this position, I did a fair amount of time with the senior leaders because the reports generated would be provided both across the Air Force as well as to the offices of the Vice and Chief of Staff. I worked for four different supervisors during my tenure, all lieutenant colonels. I can confidently say that each of them had their own quirks, as leaders do, and they well supported me and provided me with advanced opportunities. During my time, you'll learn that I was responsible for three very different areas of responsibility. Soon after my arrival, I earned my second Meritorious Service Medal from my time at Air Combat Command, and since I was in the final throes of earning my doctorate at William & Mary, I established some early professional credentials with my peers. Most notably, after my second base-level job, I received two Meritorious Service Medals. Since one of the factors in my moving to the air staff was the work I did with the financial indicators and the tracking of the different funding types after Congress separated our activities into those A, B, and C activities, by now my famous regression analysis was becoming part of the Air Force. This was the area that I was responsible for and that was a good start built on previous experience. Now, I only lived in Crystal City for about six months before moving into an apartment a bit further out from the office. Finding a place to live in the D.C. area is always a challenge. Costs are pretty high the further you are toward the center of the city. 
Two factors that led me to my choice was that the taxes were lower in Virginia than in D.C., and secondly, the commute was important. No one likes sitting in traffic, especially me. Both the office and my new place were off 395. Since the apartment was so close to the interstate, I was pretty concerned with the noise from the road. I was assured that the windows were soundproof to the interstate, and so I was convinced that this location work out, would work out well. It was a very nice apartment complex. As I mentioned, we also had parking in our building, which was a really nice benefit of not being assigned in the actual Pentagon, because first, parking was limited, and secondly, you could have parking and still walk nearly as far as our offices in Crystal City or on the other side of the building even further. Except for the senior leaders who of course have reserved parking, everyone in the building was concerned with either parking or the commute. So let me tell you how it worked then and I believe it's still in place today. Getting to and from the Pentagon was either by the metro, buses, driving, or taking advantage of carpooling. Carpooling was very different from what you might expect. There was a long line, and I mean a long line, of people who were seeking a ride to their general destination, most of which was in residential areas in Northern Virginia, well past from where I lived. The interstate has HOV lanes, which meant you had to have three people in the car to use these lanes, and they are far better and faster, of course, than the regular lanes. The line was called the slug line. So-called slugs would get into the line for set locations just off the HOV lanes and would enable the drivers to take the fast lane and get others close to their destination. It was really a win-win situation. There was even a book or like a handbook with the rules of slug lines for drivers and passengers. And believe me, if you violated the rules, you were in big trouble. It was a very organized, unorganized system that worked. There were also many organized carpools with set people, and they would just pick up a slug person when someone wasn't working on a particular day. In fact, you could be in meetings in the Pentagon and someone would just get up and leave because their carpool was leaving. And it was generally widely accepted as no problem. Well, why is all of this important? If you got caught using the HOV lanes without the required minimum number of passengers, the fine were steep on the first offense and they graduated for, uh, I think, up to three offenses. Some people would get caught with dummies in their car trying to avoid the passenger count. The police would use binoculars to weed out these transgressors. Anyway, yeah, I had parking. I think I did have to pay for it, but it wasn't much as I recall and certainly not enough to look or need another alternative. By now you know that at the same time that I was getting settled into the Pentagon, I was also finishing up my dissertation. October is into the fall semester, and by this time, I'm really just polishing up the final document. Because of the kerfuffle with the short-lived cancellation of my research by the Admiral, 
I moved quickly to get this project completed and into the writing phase. An area that I had to spend some time thinking about was how the research had broader implications for the world of higher education. It seemed to me that the implications were for other unique professions that had highly educated senior leaders that required advanced education to meet accreditation standards for awarding graduate degrees. What I found was a well-respected model by Alexander Flexner that he wrote in 1915 that defined a profession that maintained relevant and recognized education of various professional schools. And so this was an illustration of how his model had relevance today. Further, it validates that the rigor of institutions like the National War College, which was one of the first of these schools to award advanced degrees, notably, today nearly every resident, intermediate, and senior service school awards an accredited master's degree from their respective regional accreditation associations. And that's pretty important because each regional accreditation body has different standards, although in general they are fairly consistent. Since you have to pay for research credits for every semester until you finish the degree, except for the summer sessions, I had that in mind because it was no sense in keep paying for tuition for every semester. So I planned to defend the dissertation before the fall term was over which would be in December. Now remember that last week I mentioned I had an evil plan. Well, it's not really evil so much as it was strategic, if it worked, and a misstep if it didn't. Defending a dissertation had a cutoff before the end of the term for it to be completed in that term, and of course that makes sense. Since it's the fall semester, I checked for the date certain that I had to schedule the defense, and I hoped that all of my committee members would be available. The date I chose was the last Friday available, which was just two weeks before Christmas. Now, who wants to be attentive to a student making a presentation when you have shopping to do? It's scheduled. The defense is in mid-morning, and when you defend, you likely have some changes, hopefully minor, and then once it's approved, you submit three copies of the completed work on acid-free paper. I drive down from Washington, and I'm pretty nervous. I'm thinking that none of my committee members sent feedback on any of the chapters, so that was hopefully a good sign that everything was going well. My new colleagues were also very anxious for me and excited because it was a pretty big deal for a staff member to earn a doctorate, or hopefully earn their doctorate. So I get to William & Mary and I make my presentation. There are some questions, and in, in hindsight, there are pretty softball questions, and I was able to respond well. Then there came a question from the same guy that I got stumped at at the orals. Well... Now, the question he asked was actually in the dissertation, and I responded that that's a great question. In Chapter X, I outlined how that was relevant and took the approach by saying that perhaps I could further or better outline how your question is made more distinct. The response was, oh, sure, I, I think that will be okay, and I knew that he didn't read the dissertation. 
Afterwards, Dr. Thielen and I walk back to his office, and I ask him if I had to or should I make the changes to address the question that was posed. He looked at me and nodded his head. No, you clearly addressed that issue in your dissertation. He said, now, just get me the three copies and file for graduation with the registrar's office. I opened my briefcase and said, here you go. Three copies on acid-free paper. He was shocked and smiled. He said, get out of here and file for graduation. It was a great day. I did it. The farm boy from New York was going to get a doctoral degree. And so many helped along the way, giving support and, most frankly, encouraged me along the way. Like many institutions, when you finish in the fall term, you actually don't walk until the spring term, although you are both finished and graduated. Some of my cohorts that I mentioned earlier that started at the same time that I did, only two others finished when I did, and they were the two other military officers. A few more were done by the spring term, and more on graduation when that comes about a bit later. Let's get back to my apartment. It was on a fairly high floor and was very comfortable. There were some close establishments nearby, including a really good Cajun restaurant. It's now closed, but it was within walking distance. Not far down the street was the very first Five Guys restaurant. And as you know now, that's a national chain. It was less than a week after moving in that I realized that the windows do not deter the noise from the freeway. So I'm downstairs asking the management management office, what's what? After some back and forth, and the manager did remember that we had that conversation, they actually replaced the windows in my apartment with sound-reducing windows. The lesson learned here is don't be afraid to speak up, and I've kind of done that a lot during my life. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. I had pretty, I had, oh Lord, it's Kona. Hi Kona, just a minute, just a minute. Wait, okay, Kona's right here, standing right in front of the microphone. Okay, there we go. I had quite a bit of family that was pretty close by this point. My sister was stationed at Fort Meade in Maryland shortly after I arrived, and uh, Fort Meade is about halfway between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland. She came from Fort Meade. She came to Fort Meade from Rota, Spain. And I met her at the airport for uh, one time. And I didn't recognize her at first. She was all grown up, confident, poised. And I guess, like me, we weren't on the farm anymore. I got to see her as well from time to time. In addition, my cousin lived in Washington, D.C., so that was nice. And we got together fairly often, him being so close. I mean, D.C. is only minutes away from Arlington, Virginia. And in addition, my aunt and uncle, who was my mom's younger brother, and their family lived in southern Maryland. It wasn't that far, and yet it was still a fairly long drive because you had to go north into D.C. and then south into southern Maryland, and it was quite a ways into southern Maryland. Now, today, that area is considered local. I spent a fair amount of time with them as well. This was the first time that I'd be relatively close, no pun intended, to family. 
Now, before I moved to a more permanent apartment when I was in Crystal City, my sister came to visit, and I remember this quite well. At the time, she had been dating a young man who she became quite serious with, and I had met him once at an office Christmas party. It was a studio apartment, and she sat on the end of my bed, and she said something very serious to ask me. She asked me what I thought about David, and that they were thinking about getting married, and what did I think about that? Now, I had only met him once or maybe twice, and I had another sister that basically, I remember, asked me almost exactly the same question. And I told her, listen, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is if you love him, and she definitely did. Wendy and David not only loved each other, they were perfect for each other, and it's awesome. They eventually do get married, and that story will come a bit later. All I'll say is that I was late to the rehearsal dinner because of a most unusual accident in D.C. that you'll hear about. Back to work, things get even better for me, at least, for sure. The first director was a colonel, and he left shortly after I arrived. By this time, because of a merger with MWR and services, the director position was upgraded to a one-star general. In came General Lisi. General Lisi was the director of personnel when I was in Korea, and remember MWR was under personnel at the time, when I won the PACAF awards and the Air Force award, so he already knew who I was. This would continue my fortunate situation of working for amazing leaders. Like Mr. Myers, General Lisi also took me under his wing, and I was in situations that were both opportunities and exciting challenges. So at work, Things are, growing, things are going really well. General Lisi's first endorsement on my performance report said that I count on Tom to handle far more than his fair share of tough issues. One of my responsibilities was to oversee the NAF construction process. I mentioned before that even though it's not appropriated funds, the construction process still had to be approved by Congress, and the whole process, as you likely imagine, was a long one. This was my first chance to work with the other military services to try to have standards across DOD to help move things faster through the congressional process, and that was a real challenge. I remember at one of those meetings there was some consternation. The Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force all have their own ways of doing things, and to get anything agreed upon was not an easy task, adding that I was always the most junior, and sometimes by far, person in the room. At one meeting, there was the typical back and forth, and finally I said, okay, here's how I see it. We're all on the same side. Our uniforms have a U.S. on the collar. They don't say T-H-E-M. Oddly enough, that helped break the ice and we made some progress. It wouldn't be the last time that I would use that analogy. This was a period where the staff really started growing, not super fast, but faster than most. And we get an announcement that a new staff member is arriving, Captain Ed Schock. As you recall, when I was at Randolph, he was the services operations officer when I was the MWR operations officer and dragged me to the fitness center during lunch to run along the flight line. You quickly learn that the Air Force is a really a pretty small place because you cross paths 
in a career, sometimes fairly often. Even though services was larger than MWR in terms of the officer strength, as a combined career field, we were still one of the smaller career fields compared to, say, personnel, engineering, or security forces. He had made a very strong footprint on the Air Force in the area of the SIMS, which was the Automated Services Information Management System, and he was brilliant. I remember shortly after he arrived, he came by my cubicle and said, Hey, great news. We have the internet up and running. Now, now some of you may be wondering, what, just now? Yes, this is the time that the Air Force had the internet at individual workstations. Up until then, it was just the intranet for basically email and a few internal sites. And actually, for the perspective, the early to mid-1990s was when a lot of offices downsized their administrative support because individuals could do word processing, PowerPoint, and calendar integration right at their desks. Imagine that. For example, when I was at Langley, initially, PowerPoint would be on shared workstations, and I suspect because the licenses were pretty expensive. Anyway, I had heard about the Internet, and it was pretty sketchy from what I knew. I thought it was basically a place where you could find limited information in text form. He was surprised by my lack of understanding, so he brought up a site where I could walk through Paris and see the sites. Now, it was still, at the time, pretty rudimentary, but it was really cool, and I was hooked. I became an Internet junkie. Today, of course, we do everything on the Internet, but it really wasn't like that back then. In another couple of years, to show when this was, Yahoo went public. There was another benefit of the Internet, the open conversations with senior leaders. General Lisey and Mr. Myers often discussed the market, and since that was something that I had strong interest in and became pretty good at, we would sit and chat about that from time to time as well. Some people play golf with senior leaders for that face-to-face -face casual conversation. Well, remember when I was at Langley, I used fake smoke breaks, and now the stock market was my golf time. The first year went by pretty fast, and another important milestone had to be completed. Except for academy graduates, officers are commissioned as a reserve officer, and in layman's terms, what that essentially meant was an officer couldn't stay past 20 years, and you had to be a regular officer, and in addition, it showed that you were essentially a career officer. I believe the process has changed in today's Air Force. Then, it was more of a milestone, because on your performance reports, you would have your Social Security number, followed by an FV for reserve, or FR for regular it definitely could be a tiebreaker for, say, a special assignment or something like that. Most importantly, it was a tiebreaker when there was a tie for a promotion date, for example, to major. The date that an officer becomes regular breaks that tie. For example, everyone in my class at OTS that had no performance issues would have the same date of rank. So when the line numbers would come out for those who would make major, that line number tiebreaker is the date an officer becomes regular. For me, despite being on the air staff, 
something slipped through the cracks and I wasn't selected for regular for about a month after the minimum period of time. And that would become a factor down the road. And I'm sure you can guess how. Example is that for every year group, the academy graduates, even though they don't aren't commissioned until summer or early summer, they are always on the front end because they are already regular officers. Moving into 1993, my job would change to the deputy chief of the hospitality programs branch. My part of the hospitality branch included Air Force Lodging, which managed what you could consider the hotel program of the Air Force, with more than 52,000 rooms at 120 locations for 16-plus million customers. Air Force Lodging was the third-largest mid-grade hotel system in the world. In addition, I was the program officer for policy coordination with APHIS, or the base department stores, libraries, class 6 stores, remember those are the liquor stores, and the slot machine program. Some of these may sound familiar with my experiences at both Randolph and Osan. The biggest part of the job was clearly the lodging program and the one that I had no experience with. That was one of the best benefits of being on a rotation with the air staff because it put fresh ideas on programs and gave people experience in areas where they might have had none at all. Fresh eyes on programs really does make a difference. There hadn't been a lot of changes since long before the merger, so it would be a chance to take a strategic approach to lodging. This was one of the reasons that I spent so much time on staffs was because I do tend to have a more strategic framework in how I think. My masterpiece? Well, it was called In Focus 2000. I-N-N Focus 2000. The main idea was to gather more efficiencies on how we bought things and how we managed the facilities across the Air Force and across the major commands. Not only did this seem like a really good idea for the Air Force, it seemed like there could be efficiencies with the other services. So I met with them like I had before with the construction program. I'm really hoping it's not a U.S. versus T-H-E-M situation. Alas, that phrase did come to play once more. Because of this event, I'm at a reception where I meet the Air Force Chief of Staff in person, and I'll share about that next week. Unfortunately, we also will have another death in the family, and the Clinton administration announces don't ask, don't tell. I'll share some of the background conversations that occurred as a result both in lodging and my personal experience. Until then, have a great week. Corner also says, we'll see you next week, since she does love to jump up on the table when I record the podcast, as you've seen.